Welcome to Military Network Radio, where we'll bring dynamic interviews and fresh information about topics affecting your quality of life at each stage of your military service. Join us each week for information of value that improves your outlook, actions, and encourages each member of the family. Serving the military, their families, and those who care about them. Everyone serves, and together we make a difference. And now, here's your host, Linda Crater. Good morning and welcome to our show today. We have a lovely topic today. And it's one that no matter what time of year you may be listening to our show, it brings you warm fuzzies. It lets you recognize the perspective of those who are away during our holidays. And in this case, this one is about Christmas. And it goes all the way back to World War II. And we're going to be talking today with veteran author, Army vet, I might add, Mike Guardia, about his wonderful book with beautiful illustrations called World War II, The Night Before Christmas. Mike, welcome to our program. Hi, Linda. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure. And I, of course, went and looked at the book on uh, Amazon, as most people do. And one thing that struck me was the warmth, the connection, and the illustrations all really brought home the feelings of uh, the unity that comes during holidays. Whether or not you celebrate a particular holiday, there are traditions that are passed down through families. And I, I think it's particularly poignant for those who serve and who may not be around. And your message goes back 50, 60 years. And so I think that's important. Can you first go step back and, and talk about why it was important to you to write this book? Well, Linda, uh, for me, it was really just paying respect and paying homage to all of our World War II veterans and all of the sacrifices that they made, uh, especially when I think about all of the holidays that they missed with their families back home, and uh, particularly when I think of a lot of the fine young men that went off to fight overseas and didn't come back. Uh, so for me, it was a chance not only to pay my respects to those veterans who came before me, uh, but also to uh, put it in a format and also juxtapose it against uh, against something that can be seen as a universal good like Santa Claus. Mm-hmm. It's funny, I had the privilege of living in St. Nicholas, Belgium. And <laughs> it's it's so interesting how the traditions are the same, mm-hmm. um, slightly different, slightly modified, but it was a, a taste of, of home when we were not at home. And I, I think that what you're talking about, paying respect to those vets who go before you, I think that's so important because the the history of serving is is one of often families continue to serve generation after generation. And often it affects the younger generation who find great respect and honor in following that tradition. Would you agree? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I, I think that uh, I think that that's something that we as Americans hold pretty near and dear to our hearts. Mm-hmm. You know, the collective sense of community and, uh, you know, it, and I, 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 I've tended to notice that the uh, community spirit and uh, also the uh, also the service ethic tend to be amplified more around the holiday season. 
I think they are, and I think that has been traditionally the time when you see all the messages about, you know, don't forget those away, those not able to be with their families. And that reflects on many, many families, not only those in the military, but we are a very mobile society. And I think that in many ways, recognizing anyone who is not around um, at our holiday tables, we often mention those who are not seated at the table with us. And, And it's very important to know that our greater community extends well beyond our dinner table, our letter writing, um, and your book, which, let's go back to the book. You are a writer. You've written, you know, very well-renowned books in the past. And tell a little bit about that, and then we're going to come back to World War II the night before Christmas, because I think that's really the focus of our conversation today. All righty. Well, for me, I actually started writing books when I was still on active duty. I was a young lieutenant at the time, was around 25, 26 years old, and uh, I knew I wanted to write a book at some point, but uh, I wasn't quite sure when, where, or how I was going to start. When I found the topic for my first book, American Guerrilla, back in 2010, uh, I I knew that I had found that starting point, and I initially got into it thinking that um, that first book, American Guerrilla, was going to be the only one I would write, and after that I would call it quits. Uh, but once the bug bit me, uh, it really took, and I started finding more stories and more topics that I wanted to write about. Mm-hmm. And uh, the more I searched and the more veterans I spoke to, the more I told myself, you know, there's so many good stories out there to tell. I can't just stop at one book. I, uh, I have to keep going. I have to keep putting these words to paper. And uh, around... I want to say it was around 2015. Um, I had already become the proud father of two little girls at this point, <laughs> and uh, they were a continuous source of inspiration for me. They are my lovely muses even to this day. Yay! Yeah, and I, uh, I, I, I never really considered writing a children's book until uh, one winter we were at home. We were watching a Hawaiian-themed cartoon on TV. And I looked outside our living room window, and it was snowing outside. And just at random, I thought to myself, huh, what would happen if it snowed in Honolulu? I bet that would be crazy. (laughs) And then a split second after I asked myself that question, I said, you know, that would probably be a great topic for a children's book. So after I put my girls to bed that night, I took out a legal pad, and I just started jotting down some rhymes about, you know, what would a snow day in Honolulu look like? How would people Mm -hmm. react to it? And that was the genesis for my first children's book, It's Snowing in Hawaii, which was written in rhymes. Mm-hmm. And then I thought back to all of the uh, poems and children's books that I enjoyed so much when I was a child. And I thought to myself, you know what? The Night Before Christmas was always one of my favorites. Mm-hmm. And, there was, and there was another topical parody uh, that was written uh, back in the mid-80s. It was called Texas Night Before Christmas, where uh, Santa comes to the upper plains of Texas, and instead of it being a sled and eight tiny reindeer, he's riding in a covered wagon that's pulled by oxen. Love it. And uh, that was just one of many topical parodies of The Night Before Christmas that came out. And then I thought to myself, you know what, I really want to do one too. And uh, I I thought to myself, well, of all the parodies out there, there's really not one that I think focuses on the sacrifices that soldiers make. So I said, well, why not a version 
that takes place in World War II on Christmas Eve, 1944, mm-hmm. when you know there, our troops are in the middle of the Battle of the Bulge, and you know they're they're freezing. They don't have winter clothes. They don't really know if they're going to win against the Nazis. And then all of a sudden, they get a surprise visit from Saint Nick. I think that's something that audiences would like to read about. And uh, about uh, six uh, over the course of six months or so, I, I was tweaking a narrative, and uh, then finally came up with the final script of World War II: Night Before Christmas. You know, I, I love that story because I, I think you've done what so many people talk about doing, which is to take the musings in your mind and actually put them down on paper. How many times have you heard someone say, "I have a book inside me," but oh. <laughs> I, you know, I I think it's something very common, but I don't think it's common to actually take the action and do it and then become published. And yet I'm guessing it's also a, a very strong messaging catharsis for you to be able to take your thoughts, put them in writing, and then realize that other people really want to learn more. It is. It is. And it's... Um, it, it, in many ways, it's also pretty empowering because you. Uh, I found that once I got past my second or third book, the process became a lot easier. Uh, because I think the uh, I think the biggest growing pains that any writer has is when they're trying to do their first book, and you're you're trying to get the narrative flow down. You're trying to uh, you know you're you're trying to get the words together, and uh, really just find your voice and find your writing style. So it, once you get past that first hurdle of creating your first draft, uh, that's when I noticed the process got a lot easier. And, uh, you know, you'll find that uh, there's a market out there for pretty much any type of literature. You make a good point because I think that um, in this world of so much communication, but often very little engagement, if you seek it, you can find those who are interested in just about any topic under the sun, especially when it's something positive, when it's not telling people what they should do, when mm-hmm. it becomes something that is a choice, and something especially like this is a, is a definite choice. When you're faced with reading a book about work, a book about, uh, oh, I don't know, family, and then a book about something that, makes you smile when you just think about it and have multiple emotions. I think the emotional connection is often what's missing these days with the online digital world and the way we connect with one another. And your choice of the night before Christmas is very non-threatening. It's open, it's accessible, and I, I think you chose wisely. And, and talk about how the illustrations became a part of this. We're coming up on a break, and we can continue after the break, but I know that that's such a vital part of this book. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, the illustrations, um, I was really blessed to find a top-notch illustrator. Her, her name is Melanie Stevens. Mm-hmm. Uh, she is a, uh, she's, in, she's in very high demand as a commercial artist and a children's book illustrator, and uh, on top of that, she's just one of the most pleasant people that I've ever had the pleasure to work with. Here is, here is a lady who uh, can take 
all of the rough sketches that I have designed, and I have to caveat this by saying I have no artistic talent whatsoever. <laughs> if there was a way to mess up drawing stick figures, I could probably do it. Oh, you and me both. <laughs> but, uh, you know, she's able to take these rough ideas that I'm scribbling down on paper and just refine them into the most beautiful illustrations that I have ever seen. Uh, so she is uh, she's quite an asset, and uh, for every future children's book that I write, I don't want to write a single children's book that she doesn't illustrate. There you go, and we'll use that break to go on break. We are listening to Mike Guardia, Arthur, author of The Night Before Christmas and World War II. We'll be back after these short messages. Don't go away. We have far more to come. Military Network Radio, and we'll be right back after these short messages. It's words you never heard. Have you ever walked into a room on a mission to get something and totally forgot what you went in there for? I do it all the time, which makes me feel like a total civ head, as the Brits would say. Some might blame it on old age, but a recent study reported in the Quarterly Journal of Experimental Psychology suggests the simple act of passing through a doorway causes memory lapses. It appears the brain regards a doorway as an event boundary and effectively files away whatever you were thinking about as soon as you step through. What's a word for the feeling your thoughts are being stolen? New kleptia. So, what's the solution? Try carrying an object that reminds you of the task. For example, if you go into another room to get a pair of scissors, carry the object you want to cut. It's I'm Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words you never heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Words. Welcome back to Military Network Radio. Serving the military, their families, and those who care about them. Together, we make a difference. Welcome back. We're continuing our discussion with Mike Guardia, the author of The Night Before Christmas about World War II. And, you know, we were talking on the break about how the illustrator, Melanie Stevens, really gathers the emotions of the time. It's positive, yet it's poignant. You can feel the wants and desires of the soldiers wanting to be at home, but also understanding the magic when St. Nick arrives. Would you like to talk a little bit more about her and, and how she did capture what you talked about right before the break? Absolutely. Well, Melanie Stevens uh, was also the illustrator uh, that was attached to my first children's book, It's Snowing in Hawaii. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I, was, uh, I was beyond impressed with the work that she did in that book. It was, uh, it was truly better than anything that I had expected. Uh, so when I got the idea for World War II night before Christmas, I approached her and said, uh, you know, it, essentially I said, please say yes, you know, because <laughs> I, I don't want to do another children's book without you being the illustrator. And uh, she graciously said yes, and that she had enjoyed working on Snowing in Hawaii so much that, uh, you know, she uh, she pretty much considered us a team now, which was very Great. good news to me. And... Uh, so we, so we had a discussion about how the pictures should look, and I said that, you know, I, I, have, these, uh, I have these general uh, scribbles, pretty much the same thing that I had from last time, and, uh, you know, I wanted to, uh, I'm going to leave, of course, some things up to your artistic interpretation, 
And she said, uh, well, this is great, but uh, for this upcoming book that we want, instead of doing the designs digitally, why don't I do them by hand? Because uh, I think uh. it would give a more intimate setting to it. And I thought about it for a while, and I'm like, no, you know what? That's brilliant, because that's the uh, entire spirit that we want to capture with the book. Uh, so for each of the uh, for each of the artist spreads that she would uh, take and she would refine, she would send me a revised concept sketch and said, okay, Mike, based on these horrible scribbles that you've given me, here's, <laughs> here's how I refined it. And uh, every single one of them uh, was just amazing. And when she um, sent me the final product, and she sent me the final product uh, for each of them, uh, it, it took about less than half of a second for me to approve it and say, this is great. And uh, what, what really um, blew me away was that each of these illustrations in the book she did with colored pencil. See, that's a talent I don't have at, at all. I'm, I'm like you. Stick figures are challenging for me. But I am awed by the gift of someone who has that. And the fact that she did this with colored pencils first would actually be a more intimate experience than the digital. Right. Absolutely. That's amazing. What you're also describing, though, is fabulous teamwork. Yes. When the two of you can work together and one and one equals 11, that's pretty amazing. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I think that is exactly the type of synergy we have because, uh, you know, these, uh, these illustrations um, from my completely unbiased standpoint are just incredible. I mean, uh, she has once again outdone herself and exceeded every expectation that I've had. Well, I've looked at them, and they're lovely. They they really are. They do pay respect and homage to the families. Then and now, is there anything in the book that you wrote that you would alter if you were to write this for our current conflict vets? Hmm. Well, I would probably put it in Afghanistan. Good and, move. And uh, I would I would have to include a fob in there. Mm-hmm. and uh, probably make a reference to Kandahar and Bagram and uh, um, building, probably digging foxholes in the desert with care in hopes that the Taliban soon would be there. Mm-hmm. Something, something to those lines, but I would definitely uh, keep the overarching theme with St. Nick and uh, instead, and you no, know, since, in this current war, our soldiers are pretty well supplied, and you know, mm-hmm. our army supply system today is light years ahead of where it was in World War II. Uh, probably giving them uh, gifts that remind them of home, and uh, mm-hmm. probably giving them some gourmet meals, which when you're out there in the field are uh, incredibly hard to come by. <laughs> That's an understatement, but, but you're right. And the, the way parcels can get back and forth to these very remote areas is quite surprising and a tribute to realizing how much a, a taste of home, a touch of home truly matters, even you know today, if, especially today, I would say. So when you're writing books, because you've written adult and children's books, mm-hmm. what appeals to you about each? I'm, I'm talking about the adult adult series that you now speak on, and I'll let you describe that, that fulfills, I'm guessing, one part of your psyche and your brain and the way things work versus the children's books, which I imagine tap into a different part of you. Absolutely. 
Well, uh, for all of the adult books that I've written, what I've really wanted to do is I've really wanted to capture a good story mm-hmm. and uh, capture a story that provides inspiration on a lot of different levels. Um, what I try to do with each of my adult books is I want to tell a good story. I want something that's going to entertain the reader and something that's going to capture their attention. But at the same time, I want to be able to show the reader what the spirit of man can accomplish when the chips are down and the odds are stacked against you. And, uh, you know, just give them a good old fashioned testament to that do or die American spirit. Mm. And uh, that's what I really tried to accomplish in the first two books that I wrote on the guerrilla war that happened in the Philippines. Mm -hmm. And uh, of course, when I did my two books on how more, you know, just how men who uh, are, for lack of a better term, you know, really everyday people like you and me who rise to the occasion and uh, become heroes in their own right. And uh, then when I, I do my children's books, you know, it, it, I do a little bit of introspection and I, I'm actually kind of surprised that I've stuck around in the military for as long as I have because I'm a guy who is uh, I'm a guy who's very much into things that are whimsical and I, I like... Uh, I like things that involve a lot of imagination, mm-hmm. and uh, the, the things that I typically like are things that I enjoy with my daughters that you know I couldn't enjoy with any of my army buddies. I don't think anyone would want to sit around and you know watch <laughs> cartoons with Bugs Bunny or Bubble Guppies or The Little Mermaid or anything. <laughs> You'd be surprised, and now there's Moana. So oh, you of know. course. <laughs> Of course. So, uh, so the the children's books uh, really satisfy that whimsical spirit that I have inside of me, mm-hmm. and uh, it, it's a uh, creative outlet that um, it, that allows me to, you know, not only satisfy my creative impulses, but uh, also gives me something that I can share with my children that they will take with them for the rest of their lives. They can say, "Hey, Daddy." wrote this book for me, and uh, it's something that I can pass on to my own children and grandchildren, you know, however, you know, however, uh, however many generations down the line. It's a legacy, and there's something about books that, I mean, I came from a family of readers, my children are readers, it's all, how do I put it, it encapsulates so much that we experience vicariously, Mm-hmm. Um, it can take you away to places you wouldn't ordinarily go. It can provoke thought and emotions. And to me, it's the most powerful means. I, I get so much more out of reading a book than I do a video. And part of that is my generation. But I think a lot of it is also the fact that words can describe things, whereas videos or short posts often encapsulate things and think for you. I'm still a fan of uh, Lego, which allows children to use their imaginations as opposed to things that are a swipe away on an iPad. And I hope that, you know, I hope we don't forget some of those simple pleasures that you talk to someone in their 80s and 90s and they're talking about the toys they played with or the simplicity of a puzzle. And the the camaraderie that can come from sitting around a table and just quietly putting together a puzzle as a family. I know those sound lame to some families these days, but I remember them both with my own children and as a child with my grandparents and hearing stories as times when we all 
responded quietly. And I think sometimes just being still and recognizing with great gratitude what we have at our disposal is is not the rush and hush, is not the rush, rather, of the day-to-day life, but that the hush moments are very special. Does that make sense to you? Absolutely, it does. And amen to that. Because, uh, you know, th- that's, uh, that's something that I think uh, as a society, uh, particularly with how we raise our kids that we're getting away from, um, you know, th- there's this, you know, urge to, you know, engage with all these apps that you have on a tablet, apps that you yeah. have on an iPhone and iPad. And, you know, e- even though a lot of them uh, carry some good educational value, you know, like ABC Mouse or whatever, mm-hmm. uh, it, it, it's, uh, it still doesn't really, um, it shouldn't replace, it should supplement a lot of the analog learning tools and a lot of the, uh, you know, analog um, play equipment that kids have had for years on end. You know, I mean, it shouldn't replace actually holding a book, you know, building blocks, building with Legos, you know, doing things that, you know, spark your imagination and inspire some creativity aside from just, you know, rote learning from an electronic interface. Or a diagram. I know that many times the... They, the toy companies feel like they're staying with the times by providing more intricacy and then instructions so that everyone can do it. And and yet I, I still think that I can recall um, building things or, or blocks or train, you know, those wooden train sets at, at my grandparents' house when I was growing up. And, and those are the memories that are fun to pass down and to talk about. And so I agree with you. But that's also why The Night Before Christmas is one of those rhymes that almost everyone can recite. Maybe not the whole thing, but the beginning. And it just is a magical thing. Did you find yourself reciting it at odd times? I did. <laughs> I sure did, and it's funny you should mention that because, uh, you know, um, there were times when, uh, I mean, I was in the process of constructing the narrative, and I would take a break from it for a little while, you know, just to run an errand or, you know, do some other adult things that I have to do, and uh, at the most random times, I would be saying to myself, uh, you know, more rapid than eagles as coursers they came, or, uh, you know, uh was the night before Christmas went all through the house and you know while visions of sugar plum dance in their heads and I'm right. saying okay, you know stop I mean focus you know you're supposed to be grocery shopping right now <laughs> no I think our our inner psyches have a way of um putting to the forefront that which is truly on our minds and and I, I call it intuition uh you you can call it what you wish but I often think that those messages that come to us unbidden are are trying to speak to us in terms of what we should do next. So I love those unbidden thoughts or it's the same thing as waking up, hearing a specific song in the morning and thinking, wow, that suits today. And I don't know where I came up with that. And so it's, it's given to you. It's a gift in my view. And I love that part. So we are going on another short break. We're talking to Mike Guardia, who you can find out more information about Mike at MikeGuardia, G-U-A-R-D-I-A dot com. We'll be back after these short messages. Don't go away. We're Military Network Radio, and we'll be right back after these short messages.
a recording of our own voice, it always sounds different than we think. This is because the bones in our skull create a resonance from within that makes our voice sound deeper to us. But our recorded voice is how others hear us. I'm sure I'm not the first person who has uttered the words, I really don't sound like that. Do I? Margaret Thatcher famously underwent vocal training to lower her voice and make her sound more statesmanlike. Recently, British Airways polled Americans and Britons to see who they believed had the sexiest voices. Morgan Freeman was voted number one. If a judge loves the sound of his own voice, expect a long sentence. What's a word for a person who loves to hear the sound of their own voice? A philodox. I'm Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words-you-never-heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Words. It's the Fitness Minute with fitness expert, Annette Hammond. Did you know that the average teenager drinks twice as much soda as milk? Since 1983, sugar consumption in the U.S. is up 28%. Why is that? There are several reasons, but one of the most common is soft drinks. 20-ounce beverages have become the norm, and it's not surprising to find that 43% of our sugar comes from drinks. Sugar is blamed for poor nutritional diets. USDA data shows that people whose diets are high in added sugar eat less calcium, fiber, iron, protein, and many other important nutrients. Fat-free foods are also a culprit. Since sugar is fat-free, many people tend to think it's okay to eat as much as they want. Remember that just because a food is fat-free does not mean that it's calorie-free also. For the Fitness Minute, I'm Annette Hammond. Welcome back to Military Network Radio. Serving the military, their families, and those who care about them. Together, we make a difference. Welcome back. We are talking about this wonderful book called World War II, The Night Before Christmas, with the author Mike Guardia. Mike, talk about why you feel and why I agree with you. This book will resonate with military families and even those who have their family members gone at many times of their lives. Absolutely, Linda. Well, there are really two things that I think uh, would resonate with military families when it comes to this book. Uh, first is that it, um, it, it highlights, and I think that this is something that a lot of military families can relate to, it highlights the sacrifices that all of our servicemen and women uh, make whenever they have to be away from their families for incredibly long periods of time. Uh, and it always gets harder for us around the holiday season uh, when we have to be separated from our families. It's probably the most trying time of any mobilization or any deployment. And for us to take that feeling and encapsulate it into a children's book and uh, to juxtapose it against something that is a universal good, I think will help not only families appreciate that, but will also help the children of service members appreciate it, too. So uh, that's the first thing. And the second thing I think will resonate with families is that, you know, while we're paying respects to the sacrifices that these veterans of every generation have made. Mm-hmm. We're also showing kids that that uh, while we're respecting these sacrifices, we're putting it up against something that is regarded as a universal good, and that universal good being Santa Claus, and that Santa and the, and the spirit of Christmas is always on the side of what's right. 
and it's always on the side of what's good. And uh, to help reinforce that second point, if I may, uh, there were a few stanzas that I wanted to read from the book. Feel free. And this is closer to the middle of the story. Mm -hmm. And uh, this, I think, really helps encapsulate uh, not only the sacrifices that the GIs were making, but how Santa is this universal force for good, and he helps those who are always right. So he's landed, and the story begins. He flung from his shoulder a green duffel bag and approached our position with a true G.I. swag. From his boots to his brow, he was a soldier's sensation, though his belly and beard were beyond regulation. <laughs> he said not a word, but went straight on his way to fill up our foxholes with goods from his sleigh. There were jackets and blankets and warm winter clothes and new leather boots for our frostbitten toes. There were sleeping bags, coffee, and rations brand new. Merry Christmas, he said to the red, white, and blue. The Nazis are naughty, but you GIs are nice. And when you're on my list, I don't need to check twice. Gee, thanks a lot, Santa, I said with delight. Now we've got what we need for the upcoming fight. We're going to beat those Nazis and the rest of their ilk. But I'm sorry, we ain't got no cookies or milk. But old Father Christmas kept his yuletide composure and with a wink of his eye placed his hand on my shoulder. Rest easy, Sergeant, he said. I've accomplished my mission, to bring holiday cheer to this combat division. See, I know the difference between what's wrong and what's right, and I reward those who fight the good fight. Mm. I love it. Oh, thank you. I love it. And, and as I said earlier, the illustrations coupled with the words, it... Um, it transports you. And I think that's the mark of a good book, is if it can transport you, even for a very short time. And I think that's why something, as you said, so universally good, you know, Santa Claus, Saint Nick, um, universally seen as positive. And it's, it, it's very moving, actually, as you have adapted it, and yet it still retains the same spirit of the original. Absolutely, and that's uh, that's exactly what I was going for. wanted to uh, wanted to uh, wanted to retain the structure and uh, a lot of the rhyme and integrity of the original, but mm -hmm. uh, still make it uh, still make it a uh, a quick and easy read and something that would hit home not only for families but also for kids. So talk about the children. What has been the response from kids? Because I know in most households, older children read to younger children, um, it, and it gets passed down as a tradition. Is, is that your hope? Absolutely. Absolutely it is. Um, so far, uh, the response that I've gotten has been overwhelmingly positive. Mm -hmm. I I beta tested the proof copy as a bedtime story for both of my daughters, and they loved it. Mm -hmm. uh, they particularly loved the illustrations, and uh, they were pointing to they were pointing to various parts of the story, trying to figure out who the bad guys were. I'm like, okay, the bad guys are on this page, and then Santa's helping the good guys. <laughs> and uh, uh, in the uh, two weeks that it's been out on the market, it is selling very well. Uh, it's been picked up for review. 
uh, by two parenting blogs, um, both of whom uh, both of whom have had an uh, incredible amount of praise for it. And uh, I really think that going forward into not only this holiday season, but many more Christmases to come, that it's uh, it's going to be a going to be a an inspirational story that uh, ties in very well with the holiday spirit. I agree with you, and I think it also shows military children that the sacrifice is for good, that Santa Claus will come no matter where they are, no matter where mom or dad are, and that the the good will follow, and there will be a reckoning for naughty and nice, and we all play our own small part in that, but kids are simple. You know, it it is about, you know, good guys, bad guys, um, the tenacity of Santa Claus, who who always appears, and I love the part about we don't have uh, cookies and milk, and yeah. it's just a lovely tradition uh, that sometimes you don't have cookies and milk, but that doesn't make a difference in the outcome of the arrival of Saint Nick. Absolutely, absolutely, because he's uh, it's pretty much like he said in the story. He rewards those who fight the good fight. Mm-hmm. He absolutely does. In light of the, the uh, what should I say, the political tenor these days, yes. was there any hesitation about writing about the bad guys? Uh, no. I, I, I probably, um, I, I, I didn't give it much thought really as a function of uh, World War II being something that I found people on, you know, either side of the political spectrum, they tend to agree that it was a, uh, they, they, it, they tend to agree that it was a necessary war and mm-hmm. pretty much everyone out there is in agreement that uh, Hitler had to be stopped and that uh, the Nazis were a force for evil and that the, and that the allies had to uh, step up, to make sure that those forces of darkness did not spread across the, uh, you know, across the entire world. So, and, uh, you know, even on the, uh, you know, even on the outside chance that, you know, I got some, uh, somebody who uh, took issue with the content of the story, I said, well, you know, I think there's going to be enough folks out there who will find a positive message in this and with whom the story will resonate so much to the point that it'll, you know, drown out the occasional ankle biter. Well, I think it's also very, very important that we not rewrite history. We can't erase it. We can't rewrite it. These are facts. You know, mm-hmm. this goes back far enough that there's so much documentation that, yes, you get those occasional people who deny that anything happened. But it's you'd be hard pressed to to not prove this one um, as fake news. I mean, that's craziness. So I'm glad that you wrote it that way because I think that if we try and erase history or try and make it go away then we are definitely doomed to repeat it. And that's just my personal opinion based on nothing except the fact that if you ignore what's happening, you are not seeing. And I, I, I often say this because as you watch people walk around these days looking at their phones, there's a distinct lack of situational awareness. And mm-hmm. if we put away our devices just for a little while... I think we will see that there's far more commonality with all of us than there is division. Absolutely. 
I would have to say amen to that, you know, especially on uh, the importance of not whitewashing history, because uh, what I've noticed, you know, throughout my short lifespan is that a lot of our political leaders at every level, they uh, tend to assume that they're smarter than history and uh, that they can uh, they can explain away past experiences and uh, retread the same ideas. And, you know, I, 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 I don't remember who it was who said this, but uh, someone very smart, someone very intelligent once said that the definition of insanity is doing the mm-hmm. same thing over and over again and expecting a different result every time. Well, I, I think that a lot of what we're hearing right now is just so much repetition that if you say it a bajillion times, it must be true, right? right. Or the my, my personal favorite is, I saw it on Facebook, so it has to be true. And that one just makes me laugh because... Clearly, I don't look to Facebook as the arbiter of fact for me, and mm. I think most people know that you have to seek multiple sources to find out true facts, and not so much political leanings or wishing, and yet that's the world we live in right now. So thank you to you for writing about something that is known, that is historically factual that is about good and bad and and is very clear-cut in this world of fuzzy muzzy foggy thinking sometimes and I, I think it was brave of you to be honest and because I think that we open ourselves up when we take stands on one side of right or wrong as my daughter used to say well you always say there's a right way but that's your way and I, I said no there really is a right way and a wrong way for things and she has come to realize that and as she got older but it is kind of funny how that goes we're going on the final break of our program and then we will come back talking with Mike Guardia about what are the future projects he holds why are they important to share in terms of not only putting them out there into the reading universe but what are the messages that will be forthcoming because we will be following this author with great interest because I love the whimsy on the children's books and the facts on the adult fiction or adult nonfiction rather so you're listening now um, finding out more at Mike Guardia, G-U-A-R-D-I-A dot com. We'll be right back. We're Military Network Radio, and we'll be right back after these short messages. Congratulations on being the proud owner of an adorable, soft, cuddly, sweet-smelling, smiling, cooing, hungry, tired, gassy, screaming little bundle of joy. So now what? Where's the owner's manual for this thing? Where are my instructions? Right here. It's baby and toddler instructions with Blythe Lipman on toginet.com. Infant care specialist Blythe Lipman has worked with babies for over 20 years and works extensively with new parents providing workshops, in-home visits, tips, and daily phone calls to ease those frazzled nerves. With baby and toddler instructions, you can get the advice you need on how to survive and enjoy your baby's first year. For more information on Blythe and how she can help you, go to babyinstructions.com. From 32 ways to stop a baby from crying to 14 ways to get a baby to eat and so much more, it's baby and toddler instructions with Blythe Lippman on toginet.com. It's Marching Never Hurt. Big Girls 
don't cry, right? According to a recent Wall Street Journal article by Dennis Nishi, there's a stigma attached to turning on the waterworks at the office. 61% of men who reported crying at work cited personal reasons, an illness in the family, the death of a pet is the catalyst. While 58% of women said it was something that happened at work, being unfairly blamed or criticized, men are like mascara. They run at the first sign of hubba-boo. That's another word for crying. What's the word for the fear of intense emotion? Zelophobia. Women may have a better excuse for crying than men, as females have higher levels of prolactin, which encourages the production of tears, making it easier to be known as a lacrimist or someone who cries at the drop of a hat. It's I'm Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words-you-never-heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Words. Welcome back to Military Network Radio, serving the military, their families, and those who care about them. Together, we make a difference. Welcome back. On the break, we were talking about the fact that civil conversation about topics that appear to be so simple, something like the night before Christmas, and yet the discussion of of the importance of words. Uh, So using the words Nazis, going over the concept of good and bad when we're often told, well, there's a good side and a bad side to everyone and everything. Some things are rather stark in their goodness or their badness, and yet that's not a popular concept these days. Talk to me about the importance of words, Mike, because to me it's very critical. We often use the same words. We don't use a vocabulary that we certainly have, but words are important. And so as you wrote this, did, did any of these thoughts go through your mind, or, or was this more of, I have a message to impart, and I'm going to make it no matter what? Well, I think it was about six of one and half, half a dozen, dozen of another. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. So um, the overarching goal for me was really just to try to get the message out there. But uh, in the back of my mind, uh, there was a nagging voice uh, that paid a little bit of attention to the fact that, uh, you know, the fact that, you know, we live in a society today where, you know, people tend to see more shades of gray than they ought to, mm-hmm. I think. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, uh, the, the absolute, the absolute constructs of right versus wrong, uh, tend to have a little bit more leeway than they have done in years and in generations past. So I think the important thing to remember is that while shades of gray do exist, there comes a time when you have to say what's happening in the world or what's happening in this particular instance is not right, and it has to be combated, and it has to be defeated. Because I would be the first one to tell you, um, you know, myself being a student of history, that not every person living in Nazi Germany was a Nazi. Mm-hmm. True. That, that you had... Soldiers in the Wehrmacht, you had soldiers in the German army who were some of the most decent people you would ever meet. Had there not been a war going on, that person may have been your best friend. And you had American GIs who were doing some pretty questionable things. I mean, yeah, it, it's, no, it's no big secret that when uh, you know, we were in Europe fighting the war, you had a very small percentage of American GIs who murdered innocent civilians and they were promptly 
executed for that. Mm-hmm. Now, that is a very, that's like less than one half of 1% of the entire U.S. Army filled with mostly volunteers, guys who wanted to serve their country, guys who wanted to do the right thing, and guys who had half a lick of common sense enough to realize that, hey, Hitler's going to smash the entire world if we don't step up and if we don't do something about it. Mm-hmm. And I think that that same mentality applies today. And, uh, you know, well, it's, it's been in steady application for the past 17, 18 years now that we've been fighting the war on terror is that, you know, this uh, threat that we have from the likes of Al-Qaeda, that we have from the likes of the mm-hmm. Taliban, is a danger that needs to be addressed and it needs to be uh, crushed if for no other reason than the fact that they want to do us harm. So it becomes a matter of uh, clear-cut, hey, self-defense. Yeah, we're going to say, we're going to look in a mirror and we're going to tell ourselves, yeah, we ain't perfect, but we're the good guys. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, I, I don't disagree with the word you just said. And if you think back to 9-11 and the closeness and unity of the country on the 12th of September... Right. how different that felt. And unfortunately, we tend to become complacent with acts of terror, with acts of unspeakable things, you know, whether it is uh, child abuse and um, sex trafficking or pick any other heinous thing that goes on. It, I worry with the message bombardment we get these days that we do not pay attention to the individuals. And so let me pull it right back to the World War II night before Christmas, because that's what we're really here talking about. You've accomplished pulling the world together, the world of today and the world of World War II in 1944 with a simple, beloved Christmas rhyme. And that has to feel very good to you. Oh, it does. It certainly does. It uh, it's um, it, it, it's it's really a feeling of uh, well, I won't I won't necessarily say pride. It's just a feeling of happiness that uh, mm-hmm. you know that I can I can that I can construct something out there that can bring a little bit of joy to somebody and that can uh, create a bonding memory for a child and their family. Uh, that that makes me. Uh, it makes me incredibly happy. And if they can, you know, if the book can only reach uh, one family or a few families, if it can become a holiday staple for them, then uh, every bit of time and effort I've put into this will have been well worth it. I love that. I love that because I think that there are few things as universal as the night before Christmas. And it, it gives a, a deep message, but on the surface, it also gives a joyous message. And that is lovely, especially for military families, for whom holidays can be very, very difficult. Talk about the future projects that you have in mind. I I know this inquiring mind of yours isn't sitting tight. So what are some of the things that you have on the horizon or just right now fomenting in your mind? All right. Well, let's see. I'll uh, start off with a few of the adult titles uh, that I have in the queue. Um, uh, in just a few weeks, as a matter of fact, um, I will be releasing um, my third book involving General Halmore. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's called Halmore, 
A Life in Pictures, and it is an illustrated photo biography, mm. uh, illustrated with uh, nearly 300 photos of him throughout the course of his life, um, and uh, particular uh, attention paid to the latter years of his life and the uh, outpouring of condolences and respects that were paid uh, to him and his family when he passed away. Mm-hmm. And uh, then also have uh, on the horizon a uh, a combat history of the F-14 fighter, mm. as well as a combat history of the F-15. Uh, so that will, and these these are both going to be highly illustrated books that uh, appeal to aviation enthusiasts out there. Oh, there aren't many of those. No, <laughs> <laughs> every one of them I know still goes by their call sign. <laughs> I I don't doubt it. I do not doubt it. And uh, then, as far as children's books go, um, I'm gonna. I am. Uh, I'm, I've completed a script to a uh, children's book rendition of the story of John F. Kennedy and PT 109, hmm. which was the boat that he commanded during World War II. And uh, surprising uh, that these days a lot of people remember JFK as being a president, but they don't remember uh, you know his acts of heroism while he was commanding PT 109. Mm-hmm. And uh, then another children's book uh, that I have fomenting is titled "The Halloween Nutcracker." The Halloween Nutcracker. Oh yes, yes. Now, he, now that is in an intriguing concept. Go further. Uh, Okay, well, he is the uh, forgotten brother uh, of the Nutcracker that we all right. know and love for, 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 from the Nutcracker suite. And uh, it's basically him telling, of course, in rhyme, his story of uh, how, even though his big brother gets all the attention and all the publicity, that, uh, <laughs> his, uh, his Halloween suite is uh, something that kids should pay attention to and uh Celebrating all of the uh, fantasies of Halloween as a, uh, you know, pretty much as a mirror image of what his brother does up on the stage in the Nutcracker Suite. That sounds fascinating. And I presume you're using Melanie Stevens again for your illustrations? Indeed, I am. I love that. What is striking to me about both your adult fiction and your children's books is that you're talking, you're you illustrate, like you said, one's a photo biography. The other one has a ton of photos as well. Your illustrations are a key part of your books. I think you're capturing what is necessary these days, which is visual as well as factual. And that's a lovely way to keep books alive for those who seem to live in the digital space completely at this point. But this will translate to both digital forms and hard copy books, won't it? Absolutely, absolutely. All of my books are available uh, in in um, hard copy as well as on uh, pretty much any e-reader tablet you can find. Which I think is necessary these days because we all learn differently, we all absorb differently, and we all are entertained differently. And as I said before, reading to me is such a rich lesson in either escapism or education or information or just sheer enjoyment. And I, I, I was one of those kids that read the cereal box at breakfast. And I, I, my children did too. So I just laugh because they, they go on to say how important reading is for expressing yourself later, for 
being able to write. I imagine you were quite the reader too, weren't you? I was. I was. I was reading from a pretty early age and uh, couldn't get enough of a lot of the popular children's series back then. Um, it uh, was something I carried with me even into my adult years. I still am not without a book, which is one reason I moved to digital so that I can have a slew of them there just in case there's a moment that I need to do something or I have to do something that's non-work related. I love it. Mike, have we missed anything that you wanted to get across? We have about a minute and a half left, and I want to make sure that we have gotten across all the points that you wanted to make with this book. And again, give your website if you would. Absolutely. Well, Linda, I guess I just wanted to take uh, this last minute to thank you again for having me on your show. Uh, it's been an incredible experience. I'd like to you know, just give a shout out to your audience out there, uh, to all, all of the military families, to all of the veterans out there. Just know that you're not alone, uh, that uh, the, the community of veterans is incredibly tight-knit, and uh, we're all in this together. And uh, also, uh, to reiterate my website, it is www.mikeguardia.com. Uh, you can also check out my author page on Amazon. You can also follow me on Twitter at Mike underscore Guardia, and uh, there's also a Mike Guardia Facebook author page. Mike, thank you so much for your time today and sharing of this wonderful book. I really look forward to reading my hard copy. I can't wait. Thank you so much for spending time with us today. Again, that's Mike Guardia, G-U-A-R-D-I-A dot com, and we look forward to talking with you next week. Thank you so much, Linda. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for tuning in today to Military Network Radio. You can find our show at our website, www.toginet.com forward slash Military Network Radio. Also, www.militarynetworkradio.com. And in iTunes under Military Network Radio. Join us next week when we bring you another program to enhance 